information you can trust, stories you can relate to, and tips and tactics you can apply on your next adventure. Hunting, fishing, camping, and everything in between. This is the Battle Mountain Podcast. All right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to yet another podcast. Uh, today, I have Lindsay Christensen on the show. Before we get any further, we are at the draw. Uh, the booth, they're gracious enough to let me do a couple podcasts here. And what they are is a tag application service. And Jordan, who is literally sitting over here, he's helping a gentleman right now, is he knows more about the application process and where to put in, when, and everything like that than anyone I've ever met. <clears throat> so if you are looking for maybe some help with your next tag applications or whatever else, definitely give the draw a call. So thanks again to them for letting us do a podcast here. But I, I'm really excited to have Lindsay on because I'm an archery nut and I, and I know that you are as well. And I, so I really love diving in deep with, you know, people that know a lot about archery, a lot about bows. And, and, uh, I mean, you've been shooting archery for obviously a very long time, but you've been, how long have you been shooting like, like tournaments professionally and things like that? So I got my first bow when I was six and I did my first real tournament. Oh, I guess not six. I did. I got my first bow when I was four. I did my first real tournament when I was six. And, um, I don't know if you've heard of the big, World Archery Festival in Vegas or the Vegas right. shoot. Yeah. I actually went to that for the first time when I was eight years old. So okay. essentially that's an international event. So my first international event would have been when I was eight years old. Eight. Yeah. So she's been shooting a bow for just a little while because <laughs> yeah. you're probably 25. I'm actually, I actually just turned 31. So, oh, 31. Yeah, so I've been shooting a bow now 27 years. Wow. And so what, what is, what's kind of your progression been? You know, like what's, obviously when you're little, you kind of get a bow and somebody typically sets it up for you. And you're kind of like, yep, okay, I'm shooting it. Cool. Whatever. I'm just gonna go fling arrows to probably now where it's like, don't touch my bow. <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> right. So, uh, like I mentioned, my dad got me my first bow at the age of four, but how that all worked out is my dad actually, um, went to college up in Northern Idaho and he had never bow hunted before he met some buddies up there that were into bow hunting. And so he came home one uh, Christmas or Thanksgiving break. Uh, Idaho has some late season deer hunts. And so he actually shot his first deer with a borrowed bow from a buddy that he had borrowed. Yeah, he'd borrowed this bow from his buddy up in college. And then he was like stoked and hooked on it. So then he he's like, okay, what can I do to become a better bow hunter, you know? Right. And so he started shooting leagues at the local clubs and, and then started shooting tournaments and small tournaments and then big tournaments, you know, from there. Well, he didn't have any sons. It's just my sister and I. So as he was doing these archery leagues, he would take my sister and I with him in the evenings just to give my mom a break from us kids. Yeah. <laughs> and so, nice of him. so my sister and I were begging for bows, you know, before too long. And so I was four and she was like two and a half whenever we got our, our bows or so. Yeah. Two or three. And, um, anyways, so of course, you know, we start at a close distance and you know, by the time I was, I was six, I was shooting 10 yards and doing local 3d tournaments and things like that. But by the time I was eight, I was at 20 yards and beating like all the women in the state of Idaho. So my dad says, well, do you want to go to Vegas? Like, and so I was like, yeah, sure. I'll go. <clears throat> yeah. and, then, and back then they didn't even have like a age division that young. Okay. And so I was shooting with girls that were like 12, 13, 14, a little older than me as this little eight year old. And they wouldn't even let me keep score because they said I was too young. <laughs> They're like, you can't keep your own score. No kidding. <laughs> yes. And so, but they, but they couldn't add either. And so I was like tapping them on the shoulder every end. You, you added my score wrong. Like you added my, you added that score wrong. You know what I mean? And so anyways, I ended up getting a uh, third place, whatever I was eight years old. And then a couple of years later, I actually won Vegas. So I, I can't remember if I was 10 or 11, but anyways, I won Vegas at a young age. Then the year after that, my dad had his first back surgery. So that's the only year. So 99, um, that's the only year that I've missed the Vegas shoot since I started going. Right. And so I've been to Vegas over 20 times now. Um, that's cool. But uh, my dad, who, as I mentioned, is big into hunting. And that was only that was only real big tournament that he was doing every year back then. And so my dad would take my sister and I hunting with him. And so we were on the mountain with him before we could even walk. 
And so growing up, we both saw my dad harvest several animals. And I remember, like, I couldn't wait to be old enough to shoot a deer. Right. And back then, the legal hunting age in Idaho was 12. It's 10 now. But I got my first deer when I was 12. And, of course, I was just hooked. And, um, of course, you can only do, as a 12-year-old or, you know, teenager, you can only do so much hunting and go to school and things like that. But right. I was hunting everything that I could. I was playing sports in high school, so my dad would buy us the tags that he thought we could fill, you know, every year. But it was hard to, to get that done. But whenever I was uh, 15 years old, the world team trials for the U.S. world team happened to be in Tooele, Utah. And so up until that point, I had just been shooting local and state stuff and then Vegas every year. Right, and my right. dad said, hey, do you want to try out for this world team? The team trials are in Salt Lake. It's probably the closest they're ever going to be. You know, we can afford to, we can drive there. And so this was like in February or so that I found out about this tournament. So I actually started practicing three or four hours a day. I was out in the snow every day shooting my bow because it was an outdoor tournament uh -huh. practicing. And I ended up um, making that world team. So at 15. And then, um, so I made that was in 2004. And then I made the next outdoor world team in 2006. And my sister actually made that team in 2006 That's as cool. well. So in 2004, we thought, oh, this is going to be a once in a lifetime thing. And so my whole family went, my sister, my mom, and my dad went to England for the world championships. You know, we thought that's going to be like a once in a lifetime thing. Then in 2006, my sister and I both made the world team in 2006. And we thought, oh, this is going to be a once in a lifetime thing. And so my grandparents even came to Mexico with us this time for the world championships. And so my parents and my sister, my grandparents. Well, then my sister made the next team in 2007, the indoor world team in 2007. And then I made a, uh, both the collegiate and the adult team in 2010. And my sister, she's been on three world teams and I've been on four. So for what we thought was going to be a once in a lifetime thing actually ended up costing us a lot of money. Um, <laughs> and and uh, anyways, so um, as far as, as far as tournaments go, so my dad essentially, um, he worked three jobs growing up. So like archery is an expensive hobby. So he worked Ugh. three jobs so that he could afford for my sister and I to travel to all these national events and world events, you know, because it's not just, I mean, you make the world team, but there's several national events that are happening across the country every right. year as well. And so he worked three jobs and kind of put his shooting on hold until we were out of high school. And then once I got into college, my dad actually coached the five collegiate world teams in a row for the U.S., Cool. And so, so he went, whenever I was on the collegiate world team, he actually went with me over there to uh, China for the world championships. And he coached five, five world teams in a row for the U.S. But um, once my sister and I got out of high school and my dad turned 50, which is how old you have to be to shoot the senior class, he kind of started picking up his game and he's done really well on the national circuit as a senior. Made, you know, made several thousand bucks and has enjoyed right. shooting his bow. But I always had... I mean, he's very passionate about hunting too, but I, I always was really more addicted to hunting than shooting tournaments. However, shooting tournaments does make you a better hunter. So in high school, I was just staying local. You know, I did some Idaho, Utah, Wyoming stuff and, and didn't travel outside of the country until I, um, until I was out of high school. But in uh, 2017, I guess 2016, um, this competition called Extreme Huntress uh, happened. And I actually... <laughs> The, it was crazy how I ended up doing it. So there was a lady from down here in this area that did a podcast called the Hunting Widow Podcast. I'm not okay. sure if you've heard of it before. I have, yeah. And so she, because I am a, a woman who hunts, she wanted to have me as a guest on her podcast. And I was like, crap, I've never listened to anything on her podcast. Like, I should probably listen to a couple episodes on I my do drive down, you know, thing. so I can, like, reference something or whatever. <laughs> so... It was in, it was actually just after the hunting expo. So it was in March and um, I was driving down and I just clicked on a couple random episodes. And the episode that I happened to click on was Shannon Lansdowne. And she was the 2016 winner of this Extreme Hunters contest. So on the podcast, she was talking about the whole experience. And, and I was like thinking to myself, that sounds really fun. Like I could probably do that. You know, that would be a good opportunity for me. So I went down and did the podcast with this, girl and then I um, came home and I at work the next day on my break I like googled extreme huntress and the applications were due like the end of the month like the end of March and so I just happened to just fill out an application and submit it in like 15 minutes one day well 
pretty soon I got a call saying I had made it to the semifinals and then um, after the online voting and stuff I made it to the finals. So I did, did that competition in 2016 and then I was crowned the winner in 2017 of Extreme Hunters. Well, the, that competition really opened some doors for me in the hunting industry. Cool. And so it was right after that that I actually got to go on my first uh, big hunt outside of the United States. And so in that same year, so the spring of 2017, I actually went to England and to Spain hunting. And I became the first uh, woman in modern day, known in modern day, to shoot a great Osibex with a bow. That's awesome. And then, of course, I've always been into hunting, but now I like that's like what I save my money for. You know, it's like, where can I hunt next? So I've been to England, Mexico hunting, Canada twice, Spain twice, uh, Africa twice now, you know, <laughs> things like that. And so um, then I did Ultimate Extreme Hunters this, this past year. Just I just barely uh Now is that a step the, up? Yes. Then just, okay. yes. So um, I thought the Extreme Hunters thing was cool. Well, uh, the contest had been around for 10 years, and so the producers and organizers wanted to do something to celebrate the 10 years. And so essentially they did Extreme Hunters of Champions, and they called it Ultimate Extreme Hunters. So at this time last year, in fact, I was actually at the show here last year when I found out that I had made it to the finals for Ultimate Extreme Hunters. Um, they were doing like interviews and stuff like that with the previous winners, because we, so we, there had been 10 winners, uh -huh. and of the 10 of us, eight of us were still <laughs> eligible to compete compete for ultimate and so we had done like some some pre-interviews with the judges and kind of typed up what we had been doing since we won the title of extreme huntress and things like that right right and so i actually found out that i got chosen for the finals last year in february and i had already booked a hunt to africa that spring and in fact i i gave the guy the rest of the other half of my deposit here at this show and then i got selected to be in the finals for ultimate extreme huntress and they actually took us to Zimbabwe for Ultimate Extreme Huntress. And so then I'm like, crap, how am I going to go to Africa twice and still have a job? <laughs> you know what I mean? Twice in the same year. Twice within, like I was home for five weeks in between. Like, so it was like not just twice in the same year, but twice like in just a couple months too. Oh, that sounds like such a tough problem yes, to have. I know. <laughs> I know. And so then I'm like thinking, maybe I don't, maybe I shouldn't do it. And my husband's like, because I had to take all that time off without work, with, without pay, all that time off from work without pay. My husband's like, no, no, you need to do it. I'll pay for you. And it was such a great, great, great opportunity. In fact, um, we started at the FTW Ranch in Texas. And we did their, it's called SAM training, which is kind of like taught by military snipers. Mm -hmm. And so we did like dangerous game and long range and sighting in challenges and a bunch of stuff. And that's where we did our head to head stuff. Cool. And I actually was fortunate enough to win the skills challenges in the, in the competition. But then we flew straight from there to Zimbabwe. And we hunted, we were specifically after Cape Buffalo, so Dangerous Game. And Ruger sponsored the show and the competition. Uh -huh. And so we had a 375 that we were hunting with, the Dangerous Game. And I was lucky enough to be paired up with Tanya Blake. She's the only female professional hunter in Zimbabwe. Huh. And so um, all of the other three girls had, had male PHs, of course. And so it, that thing, that was just an incredible experience. We hit it off. It's like we've known each other our entire lives really <laughs> and so the judges based uh, judged us off of how well we hunted over there in Zimbabwe and I was right. fortunate enough to be able to get all four of the animals that we were able to to get over there and then that's cool we came back and everything was all filmed and the episode started airing in October and you can actually watch them on the Extreme Huntress website so extremehuntress.com or they're on Amazon Prime this season was actually on Amazon oh, that's Prime cool. so you can watch the whole season on Amazon Prime but the online voting opened as soon as the episode started airing and then um the episodes aired the first week of October through the first week of January and then I actually had to miss ATA this year I normally go to ATA right, um, right. but it was the same weekend as the Dallas the DSC show and so I actually had to miss that because that's where they announced the winner Hey, one second, everybody. I just got to say bye to a guy. Sorry about that, Lindsay. No worries. So Dallas happened. I went to Dallas. Of course, I had no idea that I won beforehand. You know, all four, all four of us girls showed up and I ended up I was very fortunate to and lucky because the competition was a lot tougher this time than I than the first time because we were I, all previous winners. Right, right. I can imagine um, it just keeps yeah, elevating, yep. doesn't it? So 
I ended up winning. <laughs> We're doing podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, now that's it's been a crazy couple months. I'm just starting into my tournaments for the year. I just got back from Vegas last week, and next week I start my outdoor circuit, and that our first tournament is in Foley, Alabama. So I leave Wednesday to go do that. I still don't have my bow set up for that yet. <laughs> so, go figure. So I need to do that tomorrow. That's my plan for Sunday's activity <laughs> is to get my bow set up. But Danny, I mentioned, so my, uh, the PH, she actually came to my house on Thursday and she had been wanting to bow hunt since she met me over there in Zimbabwe. <laughs> so we got her all set up with her first bow and she's a natural and so go figure yeah, she's a natural at it so she's <laughs> pretty excited but she actually wants to guide me uh we had such a great time she actually wants to guide me uh for dangerous game with my bow specifically leopard and buffalo that's so cool that's hard to do anyways but women don't usually do that either so uh, right yeah right. i and, and I, i've never heard of a woman doing mm -hmm. it with a bow you know so that's that's super cool so with with all that um when when you're getting ready, because you know we we talked about trying to do a podcast at ATA, and you were uh, at the Dallas yep. one. But when you know when you found out that you were going to go and kind of go through the skills testing and all that kind of stuff, did you did you start practicing? Did, did, I guess do they tell you what kind of skills they're going to test you on? Or? So they don't tell us what kind of skills we're going to be tested on, but we're just expected to be able to pick up whatever weapon it is they hand us and be able to shoot it. <laughs> And so obviously cool. I'm primarily a bow hunter. In fact, I didn't even own my own hunting rifle. Well, I had a 17 for like squirrels and rabbit hunting, but I right. didn't even own my own hunting rifle until I did the competition the first time. And the first time uh, Bergara sponsored the show. So I got a Bergara 308. And so I shot more animals for the, that competition than I had in my entire life combined with a rifle. Right. And, then, and then same thing, you know, I got a, I added a bunch more to my list this time whenever Ruger sponsored the show. But but what I did both times is, of course, now, so now I have three rifles because I got the Bergara whenever I did the competition the first time. And then Ruger gave us a 375 and a 6.5 to use. So right. now I have three hunting rifles. But um, <laughs> whenever I decided I was going to do the competition, we just contacted all my friends and my dad's friends and my husband's friends. And just was, I was just trying to shoot different, different types of guns, different calibers, you know, right, shotguns, right. rifles, handguns, things like that. Just you know, shooting clay pigeons, shooting long distance, shooting yeah. short distance, trying to shoot, you know, quick, quick draw stuff, just whatever I, I could fit in. And of right. course, as I'm going to school as well, and I actually had to take uh, that block off of school to go to Zimbabwe, which I was kind of sad about because I want to be done, of course, but um, <laughs> I figured that could wait. But um, yeah, so just, and then I work three jobs. So trying to fit all, trying oh, to fit that you're in. you're not that busy. <laughs> I, I tried to fit as much as I could in. And of course right. there's always some sort of like physical fitness challenge. So I was making sure that I was running every day out in the middle of the heat because the comp the skills competition is in Texas. And when I did it the first time we ran our biathlon at one o'clock in the afternoon, it was like 102 degrees with like 90% humidity. It was so hot. And you have to do it like in full gear, you know, your full hunting gear. So I was wearing long pants and had my pack and had to run with a gun and Right. You know, things like that. So I, I trained as much as I could, but um, I definitely could have trained, <laughs> trained a little bit more if I would have had more time. But yeah, that's, that's what I started doing to kind of prep for it. I got you. So what is, what, you know how there is, especially with social media, mm -hmm. um, I don't think it's really, some of it has helped female hunters and some of it has really hurt female hunters. And and I think, you know, there's some out there and I don't, I don't not going to name any because I honestly don't know any like individual people, but whether it be a male or a female, you know, like taking pictures with other people's game and, you know, taking pictures with guns or bows and bikinis and things like that. And, and my wife is much, much more like you where you guys actually hunt, mm -hmm. you know, you scout, you go work for it. You got your own animal, you, you bring it out. So what? What kind of stuff does extreme huntress do to portray you guys in that that type of a positive light instead of the light that's like, yeah, I'm I'm a beautiful female with a bikini and holding a bow. Mm -hmm. You know, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Kind of like what? So what kind of stuff does extreme huntress do that is allow you guys to be portrayed as 
an actual hunt athlete, which you guys are. Right. I mean, it's sounding like, good Lord, I'd have died if I had to go run my, I hate running so bad. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, so they actually asked for photos of us that were not like your traditional grip and grin photos, which uh -huh. honestly really helps um, non-hunters uh, understand hunting and not have a negative opinion about hunting. Cause sometimes like people, non-hunters or anti-hunters, they don't like to see photos with dead animals. Right. And so they actually, whenever we, whenever they started the competition, like for our bios, they just wanted photos of us like in the field, but with no dead animals specifically, they actually specifically requested that. And I think that's a, I mean, I think there's a, a time and a place for grip and grin photos. Don't get me wrong, but I think that we have such a fragile reputation as hunters that we have to be very careful about what we're posting on social media, especially women hunters have to be very careful about what they're posting on social media. You know, so if you're going to post a, a grip and grin photo, then you better make sure that your animal, there's no blood, your animals wiped, taken care of, yeah. you know, pretty clean. Like there's no, like seriously, no blood on the ground, right. no blood on the animal. We can't see your entrance wound, you know, um, it needs to be a very tasteful, tasteful photo. Like, and the, the world has become so fragile. Cause I mean, really think, think back, you know, you see, you see the pictures of like an old vehicle, somebody standing there and like seven animals strapped to the roof of the hood, right. blood dripping down. And people were like, Oh cool. Look at that. And nowadays it's just, it's so different. Right. And <laughs> I mean, I talk, my husband's a little bit older than I am. And that's what we actually had this conversation the other day. He's like, I remember growing up, I would look in the hunting magazines and the deer's hanging upside down. You can see its guts and you know, it's tongues hanging out. And, and I was like, that's cool. I want to go deer hunting. You know what I mean? And now you can't, post a picture like that or it gets banned oh. from Facebook or Instagram. Someone reports it. And you know what I mean? It's, it's interesting how much the, the world has changed and people get offended so easily by, by what most of us consider are little things, you know? Right. Um, but so besides just trying to be more tasteful in our, our posts, I also tried to be educational as well. So I don't know if you saw my post the other That's day, cool. whenever I did that Turkey depredation hunt, I actually kind of kind of explained what a depredation hunt is That's and good. you know, so that people like, I mean, I didn't just go lay down three turkeys for the fun of it, you know, like, like, the, I mean, it was fun too, it was fun but, too, there's, but there's, there's a reason. Yeah. It's yeah. not like I just go out and it's not for me, hunting isn't about killing. It's about the experience and, right. and getting close to wildlife in their natural habitat and making memories with my family and my friends right. of, you know, challenging myself. Right. And so, that's, that's the important thing, especially I think for, for any hunter, but especially for women is so that is people need to understand the, what the experience is about. And, and if you get an animal, that's great, but it's not, it's not all about killing. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm both ways for battle mountain media updates and videos, go to battlemountainmedia.com or battle mountain media, YouTube channel. I, I do like to kill stuff. And if, if somebody, if somebody says that they don't, I, and they're a hunter, I would say that there's, there has to be a part of them that does like it or else they couldn't do it. Right. But I am also agree in agreement with you that it's not all about mm -hmm. that. You know, I like the challenge. I like the preparation. And then I like going out there and having maybe my son with me or my dad or something like that and building those memories mm -hmm. and being able to look back. And, and then at the point of killing something while that, the act of that, I do enjoy I, you know, especially when it's like bow hunting and I get to watch all my hard work pay off in a good shot, you know, watching the arrow hit where it needs to hit. But then that's the, the result of that is, is almost like icing on the cake, yep. you know, cause then I can look back and I'm like, God oh, darn, we had all this fun at camp. We had all this fun finding the animals. I had fun shooting the animal and now we're having fun packing the animal out. Although it sucks. Yeah. It's still fun. And then you get to eat it yep. and it's good, you know? So it's just like on so many different levels, it just hits the fun meter. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's, so then I, that brings up the question is, you know, I often get asked like, why do I hang my deer head on my wall or my elk head or, or whatever? And, and to me, it's all about the memories. You know, I can right. look at that deer head on the wall or that elk head and I can say, oh, you know, it took me 28 days of hunting straight to get that deer, you know, and that I legitimately have a deer on my wall that I hunted. <laughs> I had a picture of it in the early season and I said, that's the deer I want this year. And I hunted that thing for 28 days, you know, right. before I got it. And finally, finally, my hard work and preparation and dedication, you know, paid off. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I actually, that was actually the first deer that I got that I was by myself. 
you know? That's so and cool. so, so, you know, like I can look at those things on my wall and think, yeah, you know, that that's what I, much well, more, much more like tangible than a picture, you know? I mean, yeah, yeah I have pictures yeah. on my cell phone, you know, or whatever, but I can look at that and be like, yeah, that was, that was rewarding. You know, that was hard work. Right. Well, and it's no different. Somebody's like, well, why do you, why do you have those, the antlers up on the wall? Cause I earned it. Mm-hmm. Why, why do you have your basketball trophy consolation prize from the third grade sitting on the shelf? Yeah. Asshole. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, come on, you earned it. You mm-hmm. worked your butt off. And, and I think, I think too, somebody views something like basketball as they're like, I know he practiced or she, I know that they had a coach. I know that they did all this stuff. And until you truly dive into archery, don't shine that in my eyes until you truly dive into archery or rifle hunting or something like that, the, the average person might not even realize the hours of practice that goes into that kind of stuff that you right. sometimes do have a coach mm-hmm. and things like that, you know? So it's, it's like, that's my prize. That's my memories. I earned that, yeah. you know, but so with that, I would, I would love to dive into some, some little bit more like on the technical side of, of archery itself because I know uh, obviously I know you have you have a great background in archery um and so I like I just kind of want to break down a little bit like say let's say a new bow of yours shows up and hold on one second everybody you have lost your child. <laughs> Somebody lost their kid. Somebody, this is a big show. There is so many people here. Today is crazy. So crazy. It's nuts, huh? Yeah, I can't believe. We were here <laughs> early this morning because um, my husband's nieces and nephews were shooting in the NASP thing. They, they had a morning, well, they have lines all day. So some right, of them right, right. had the early line, like the 9, 10, and then the other ones start at 3. Right. Um, but we were here super early this morning, and the line was already, like, going out the door at before the show even opened at 10 o'clock. It was, yeah. It's crazy. It was already out to the streets. Of the, well, we Agreed. came in the back entrance, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. It's just it was nuts. already out to the sidewalk. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy how many people. And the show just keeps getting bigger and bigger and, and bigger. Bigger and bigger. And so Tanya, the um, my PH from Zimbabwe, uh-huh. has been staying with me. She's never been to this show before. And I said, you have to come to Western Hunt Expo. Like, like seriously, I know outfitters in Africa and other countries that can book all of their hunts at this show, like for years in advance too. Right. And so yesterday she was like, you're right. There's lots of people. And then today she's like, you were not kidding. She's like looking up prices of like, it's 1700 bucks to have a booth. And she's like, we need to have a booth here next year. Like I could. Is she here? Yes, she is here. Yes. I'm going to, you I have to introduce her. Yes, she I would will. be a great one to do a podcast. Yes, she would be so, so awesome. Cool. Yes. Um. She will tell you all about her pH training. And I didn't, obviously I'm not naive. So I knew it was hard work, but some of the, it, it's so extensive. The really? training that they have to go to, to get their professional hunter license over there. In right. fact, they like, they, uh, the examiners will like break their truck and the person will have to fix it. Cause like, cause they're going to be like stranded right out with yeah. clients. <laughs> so they need to know like, well, how did, what, how to troubleshoot, like what's going on? You know, they have right, like, so right. it's not just like, uh, animal identification and brush identification, you know, cause I need to know plants and animals and stuff like that and measure trophy size and all sorts of things. And what do you do if, if somebody's panicking, but they actually like have like, so they keep them awake for like days and days and days on end so that they can see how they function when they're, you know, they have no energy and they're stressed out and, and things like that. It's crazy. You should, you should talk to her about that experience. That it's, would be cool. It's super, super cool. Yeah. That would be she would, cool. I think she would have a, a good time doing the podcast. <laughs> oh, are, uh, before we get onto the bows and what you do when you're first, you know, when you like kind of, kind of step one to, I mean, you don't have, we don't have to go into super detail, but kind of step one to, you know, you're flinging arrows. Mm-hmm. You remember the first podcast we did? Yeah. <laughs> you remember you're like, like, I don't really know about this. I'm kind of boring. And I'm like, I'm like listening and you know, I'm like, I'd been following you yeah. and, and I'm like, you kill a lot of shit. Like, I, I don't think you're really as boring as you think you are. Yeah. <laughs> I still sometimes feel like, I, I mean, in comparison to other people, I, I feel like I'm a little boring, but I feel, I mean, that's one thing that is different about, especially now that I've been kind of in the industry for the last few years, I would consider myself kind of in the industry instead of, you know, just a hobby, you know, right, being a right. hobby is 
you know, some girls really have to work for their stuff and some girls get it all for free, you know? Yeah. And so I'm one of those people who's always, who's had to work hard and I work three jobs and go to school and I, I paid for college. I paid for all my hunts, you know, like I'm not exactly. taking out loans to do, to do those things. And so, well, nobody's um, giving them yeah, to nobody's either. giving me stuff just because I'm, you know, sleeping with the right person or whatever, legitimately. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And, exactly. And, and whenever I first kind of got in the industry in 20, Jeez. in 2016, I, I was recently divorced, not dating my current husband yet. And that was like, like people are like, well, you could just go, go to dinner with him or whatever. And he'll give you a free hunt or go do, I'm like, yeah, if it was only just dinner, but that doesn't, it doesn't stop at just dinner. You know what right. I mean? Like, and right. so that's been the most frustrating thing for me is, you know, if, if I was just be willing to sleep with somebody, I could have so much more opportunity. You know what I mean? Like, and so it's frustrating. <laughs> it's frustrating to me. I've heard of women actually getting asked. Um, so when you go on a guided hunt, how do you not sleep with the guide? Yeah, you don't. Yeah, like, you what, don't. What do you, like, where are your morals and your ethics? Like, <laughs> it's and it carries over to like all facets of life too. You know what I mean? Right, it's like yep. um, if you're willing to do this to save a little bit X, of money, yep. and, you know, or do that. I'm like, so that's that's been the honestly the hardest thing about being a woman in this industry is. Like I have to work really hard for it. Whereas right. if I knew if I was just a little more scandalous, I could get so many more things for free. My wife is the exact you know same way. Mean? Yeah. Cause it, and it frustrates me because I see how hard she works yeah. and I know you well enough. I know how hard yeah. you're working. And then I see people that aren't working even, even a fraction of what either yeah. of you are working and they're, I just watch them and I'm like, they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. They don't know how to use glass. They don't know how to work on a bow. They don't know how to shoot a rifle. It's yeah. like, going on here you yeah. know well, we know yeah they all of a sudden have a tv show after a year or their yeah. own bow line or whatever and yeah. i'm like you just literally got your first bow last year yeah and have shot one thing and now you have all these things <laughs> so it's kind of frustrating but right absolutely hard work and does pay off it does it does it's you know yep for sure for I'm, sure i'm actually um trying to do the the 29 you know so the north american super slam i've made that as a as a goal that's so and cool. so i've been actually trying to like price hunts and things like that you know here at this this expo <laughs> and i and that's always in the back of my head you know i'm like oh how I many do you have so far uh i honestly not not even 10 yet not that's just, fine yeah that's just fine. the normal I, ones just you the have normal, to start with yeah, one. just the normal uh <laughs> north american stuff and then well i mentioned my grados ibex i was the that's first so woman cool. to shoot that you know in modern day with my bow so then i was like they, I want to do the Spanish Ibex slam. So I actually went back to Spain and did my Beseda Ibex with a bow. And I actually just um, booked a hunt this morning to go back and do my Ronda and my Southeastern so I can finish that Spanish Ibex slam with my That's bow. Because so cool. no woman, you know, a lot of people have done it with a rifle, but not not, not even bow. very many men have done it with a I bow. I know, I know, and right? So, yeah. So, so when, when you shoot an Ibex, I mean, how, how far are your average shots on an Ibex? On an Ibex, so the, my greatest was 52 yards. Okay. And my Beseda... To be honest, I had seven failed stocks before I was successful on my eighth stock. And the outfitter had said, you know, like plan on like a 70 to 80 yard shot. Like to say they are really hard to get with the bow. Yeah, yeah. And so I was practicing 70, 80 yards and, and many of my shot opportunities were over 70 yards, but they would just like move. It wasn't quite right, right or whatever, right. you know. And so I actually ended up getting mine at 36 yards, which no was kidding. just super lucky because the other seven times I had been over 60 yards every time, you know what I mean? Right, over, right. And so, I mean, of course, when you're hunting hard, it's not always about luck. It's, you know, hard work too, but yeah. 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 So I actually got my Besedi at 36 yards, but That's same cool. thing with the, you know, with the, the Ronda and the Southeastern, I'm, I'm expecting to have, you know, a little bit farther shot. Right. Now, of course, in Idaho, you don't, I don't typically shoot a deer or elk at 80 yards. You know what I mean? Right. I, I try and set myself up for success as best as I can, but I do practice that. Distance, uh, you know, if there's often. anyone that was like, yeah, I shot him at 90 yards, I would be like, yeah, I think you can do it. Yeah. So, so seriously. And, and I mean that, I mean that yeah. very seriously. Like I, uh, I've shot several animals, seventies to eighties mm -hmm. and, but I also practice yes. to 90, hundred, 110, mm -hmm. you know? So it's like at 80 yards, it seems a lot closer than 110. It really does. But I, I, I think it, like, like anything, um, it all comes down to the type of practice you're doing. It comes down to if you have confidence in your equipment. I mean, honestly, if somebody steps out there and I, you know, they practice or whatever, 
and they think they can make the shot, power to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you miss, you miss. Sometimes you win stuff, which sucks. Right. But if you truly believe you're going to make a great shot, then who, who am I to say don't shoot yeah, that? Yeah, well, and I mean, I'm not going to take an ADR shot unless it's perfect. Right. You know, it's all about ethics. In fact, a couple years ago, I actually shot my elk frontal, and I literally had this mental debate with myself for like five minutes while he was standing in front of me. Like, how far? I was like, should I shoot that frontal? Should I not? Like, whenever I practice, I even practice like hunting in my head, you know, like uh-huh. like positive mental talk. So the animal's like always broadside or slightly just quartered away, you know, like as I just imagine like my arrow sinking in just behind the, the front shoulder. Right. And I sat there and thought and thought and thought. And he was literally like he had no idea I was there. Literally, I was at, I was hunting out of a tree stand and he was 28 yards away. And and I and if you've hunted bow hunted much, you know that elk don't just like hang around when they're done. They're just going to work to turn around and leave. You know, yep. like I'm probably not going to get a shot. Yep. And so I sat there and I was like, like, is this ethical? Like, I literally was like having this debate. And then I'm like. You can hit, like, you have a seven-inch target at 28 yards, like, on right. this big, uh, and I'm like, I, you know, I'm hitting two-inch groups at 28 yards all the exactly. time, or smaller, you know what exactly. I mean? Exactly. And so I sat there and sat there, and I'm like, that's it, you know, when he, when he, next time he kind of, like, because he would, like, drink for a minute and then pick up his head and kind of look around and drink for a minute, I said, next time he picks up his head, I'm going to, you gonna know. I'm hammering and, him. Um, and so I shot that thing frontal. My arrow literally got completely buried. It went all the way in, and it went 50 yards and tipped over. Yep. You know what I mean? But then I come home and my mom's like, you shot that thing frontal? <laughs> and I'm like, and she doesn't shoot a bow or hunt, you know? Right, and right. And so I, and then here I am, I'm like, well, crap, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Because if I have to explain this to her of why I took this frontal shot, I'm going to have to explain it to everybody else too. But in my mind, it was an ethical shot. And I knew yep. I could do it. I was confident, you know, in my abilities. There was, he had, he was, had no idea I was there. There was nothing in between, you know, me and him. Yeah. The upward angle actually was helpful that I was just right. above Absolutely. him. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, um, and, and I mean, I would do it again today, yep. you know what I mean? And it, it's actually the biggest bull I've killed. And it's actually, this is the ivory on my ring from that bull. That's so you cool. You know what I mean? That's so cool. And, and so, but that's the, that's the thing is, I mean, yeah, I practice at 80 yards, but nine times, nine days out of 10, I'm not going to take a shot at 80 yards because it has to be literally, it has Things to be have perfect. To be right. Yeah. Yep. It has to be perfect. But I think that goes into knowing whether you can make the mm-hmm. shot or not at the same point, mm-hmm. right? Cause you, when you're thinking to yourself, okay, I'm going to take this shot. I think I'm going to take it. I think I'm going to take it. Arrange him. So like my, my South Dakota deer is a great example. I arranged it 73 yards. Cause like, I'm going to take the shot. There's no wind feeling good. 73. I, I know I can make that shot. He's slightly quartering to me. And I'm like, um, do I think I need to put it? Do I think I need to hug close to the shoulder or do I need to go in front of the shoulder? And I thought to myself, well, he's not, he's not quartering to me very hard. I'm just going to hug close to the shoulder. And so I draw back and he kind of picks his head up and looks at me a little bit. And, uh, I, I, you know, took my time. I just pull, pull, pull and it shot broke, felt great. And I just watched my arrow literally hit right where my pin was. And I mean, if it would have been blowing 30 miles an hour, I would have shot. Oh, heck no. you, but yeah. you know what I mean? Like, so I think that all goes into the whole process of, Yep. On a perfectly calm day, I know what I can do. When there's a 20 mile an hour in, I know what I can do. And you just have to take all of that into consideration when you're deciding, should I shoot or not? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But when, when it comes to working on your bows, setting up your bow, you get your new bow in the mail. What, what's the first thing that you're going to do? So, you know, one thing that I found over the, especially the last few years that makes it a little bit easier setting, setting a new bow up is I actually write down like my measurements, you know, something I found that's been comfortable, like my draw length, how long my D loop is, peep sight height, right. how many pounds I'm shooting as I'm trying to replicate like something that I'm comfortable with and feels right. natural to me. And it saves me a lot of time in the, in the long run. Whereas, you know, before I'd be like, draw my bow back. Oh, my peep sight's a little high, maybe a little <laughs> low. You know what I mean? Like move it, you know, and, yeah, I, yeah. and I'd get, you know, my, this bow might be two pounds higher in weight than my last bow or whatever. And that's really cut down on my setup time lately is I've been writing everything down. Makes sense. And you know, even I write down like how, how long my arrows are, what, what air must my arrow length I'm shooting. I always shoot hundred grain broadheads. You know what I mean? But, um, both for tournaments and for hunting, because 
I'm very busy, as you can tell, and I don't have time to, to be troubleshooting or figuring out what's going to work every single time. Right. Like, so now I know what's going to work. Right. And I just, and I start there and yeah, every bow is a little different. You know, the draw cycle is a little different or yep. things like that, but it gives me a great starting point. So I take, so I have my <laughs> downstairs, I have this bench, we call it our archery room. And I have like all these sticky notes of like, this bow was this dimension. And this is, these are the arrows I was shooting with this bow. And this bow was this, and this bow was this, right. you know what I mean? And so it makes it like a ton easier. And we have a bow press at the house too. And so, yeah. Um, now I'm shooting for a prime archery and now they actually make, um, a bow that's not like draw length specific. So for example, the one that I'm shooting now, it can go from 25 and a half inches all the way up to 31 inch draw length. Okay. Whereas before I would literally specifically like have to order a 26 and a half inch you have bow. You changed the modules, And so right? then it made or it hard cams, for me. Sorry. Yeah. It made it hard for me to actually sell that bow when I was done shooting it or, or yes. for anybody else who wanted to try a prime even, you know, like they couldn't even try it because I couldn't unless they're exactly like a mirror or image of me close. or super close, you yeah. know, it made it, it made it hard. So now we have a little more. So that's something I'm getting a little used to this year. Cause I've shot prime for five years now. Right. And I've right. always had the drawing. Is it the black? Stuff. Yep. The black series. Gotcha. Yep, so, gotcha. So I actually just, I just barely got a black one for hunting, which I'm going to go set up soon. Um, and then I got a black five and it's copper color and it's super, super cool. Um, but that's what I'm going to be <laughs> using for cool. my uh, tournaments this year. So, I shot it in Vegas, and so I had my my draw length and my poundage and stuff set for indoors. And then I'm going to, to switch to outdoors this next week. So I actually um, turned up my bow, and I tried to um, – well, last year I was shooting 58 pounds outside, and I knew that I needed to shoot 58 pounds to get 280 feet per second, which is, which is the speed limit um, in the ASA organization. Okay. And yep. so um, this bow – the Black Series is just a hair um, – slower so I actually have to shoot 60 pounds to get the same the 280 feet per second but I, I start I immediately set my bow at 58 pounds and shot it through the chronograph to see how fast it was shooting and then you know did did that so so I'm in the process of setting that bow up so I have you know my draw lengths right now I have the poundage right that I that I need to shoot to get that my goal of 280 feet per second speed with my and then I paper tuned it and got, so I've got the the rest set so that it's it's shooting a bullet hole now and yep. I actually just got a new site that I, that's what I'm going to do tomorrow is get my cool. site set up and then my site marks. Which site do you have? So I just actually got a black gold sponsor. <laughs> okay, cool. So I got the black, black gold, the black gold competition site, the two-way site. And then um, I got a shrewd uh, scope. My husband actually bought me a shrewd scope housing. And, and it's one that has like both the front and the back cover. So the shades. So for shooting outside, it does make a difference when you have a glare. And right. so, and it's also, also one thing that I'm super excited about is before I had always shot an up pin for my, my outdoor competitions. And I had this habit of kind of like freezing below the dot because I felt like I need to kind of see the dot. Uh huh. And with this shrewd scope that I'm going to shoot, it has the option to like to put your pin like coming in at 10 o'clock or at two o'clock or wherever want I want. So I'm actually going to kind of I'm actually going to run it from, I think, the 10 o'clock side. And so okay. I'll be able to actually still see the dot and aim, I, I won't have the option of freezing low because that would be weird it would, you know, look, it would weird. look really yeah. weird if i'm if yeah. i have my pin coming in you know at 10 so i'm pretty excited about that so cool. i'll be trying that out tomorrow that's awesome but. yeah i i've seen those um and not just shrewd, but i've seen you know having the post coming from different angles mm -hmm. of the scope housing and i just i've always thought of that you know because mm -hmm. that has happened to me and it's, I've noticed now that I have a resistance release that that's helped a bunch because mm -hmm. now I kind of really don't have an option because yep. I'm just pulling, pulling, pulling until it, it goes, goes off, yep. you know, Surprise. and exactly. And, and that's helped me quite a bit. Um, and maybe it might help somebody else. I don't know. But starting to hunt with it was a little different at first until I kind of got it figured out because there's a few times, you know, how hunting is mm -hmm. you're there, you're jacked up and I draw back. It's just a little bit too much pressure and I'd let go and that sucker yep. go off. Yep. <laughs> so I just, I just had to, uh, kind of really draw back. But at the same point, it made me go, are you actually, you know, are you where you need to be? Are you pulling too yep. hard? Are you pushing too hard? And that helped. And yeah, I'm left-handed, <laughs> you know, and you come back and then you're like, okay, I, that's where I need to be. And then you let off and it doesn't go up and you're like, yep. And then you start your cycle. But yeah, first couple of times, it was like, let off a chunk. I'm like, uh-oh. Yep. And 
there it goes, you know. Um, with your, uh, you know, so, so now you basically have your, your bow set up. What type of work do you do as far as arrows go? I mean, I, now are you? I guess are you settled on a on a specific arrow in length already? So for my this tournament, yes, um, and I've shot the kind of the same, you know, hunting setup for several years. You know, same uh, similar at least grain arrow things like right. that. Um, but but regardless, with every new bow, I want to paper tune my arrows to that bow, and you do that. There's several different ways to do that, but I specifically like to turn my knocks to make sure that every single one is shooting the same, grouping the same, giving me the same tear through paper. Do you so do that before tuning. you fletch it? No. Well, so I do shoot a bear shaft, yes, okay. before. But then once, now, I mean, I don't get new arrows every year. I shoot them for several till years. Till or till I, till till I don't have anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have anymore to shoot. <laughs> um, and thankfully, I don't, I don't break a bunch of arrows every year, generally. Um, but... Um, so my arrows at this point are already fletched. So to get around that, uh, and I try and keep a bear shaft, one bear shaft, you know, so that I have that I can shoot through paper. So gotcha. I try and get my bear shaft really close and then I start shooting my fletched arrows. But if you've played around with, with arrows very much, like they, they don't necessarily all um, come out of the bow the same way. So right. you can, like I can have my one, my uh, odd vein up on one and it's shooting a bullet hole. And maybe the next one I have, to move my knocks of my odd my odd veins at three o'clock, you know what I mean, to get it right. to shoot a bullet hole. And, and so, then do you reflect? And no, not necessarily. So for I know some people do do that, but um, it doesn't bother me to have my like if, yeah, when you're yeah, shooting yeah. the drop away rest or whatever. Who it doesn't cares? matter which direction your knock is or yeah. you know things yep. like that. So um, so no, I don't. And it doesn't bother me to have like the white vein up one end and the next time the next time it's the white it's i just put it on you know what i mean i put it on however the knocks on like that doesn't bother me some people are particular about yeah, that but yeah. I'm like i know that my knock needs to be here for my arrow to shoot in the middle yep and so i would rather you know it that's not something i need to waste my energy worrying about is making refletching and making everything you right. know perfect i actually shoot all my bear shafts through paper mm -hmm. and i'm sure you've done that too and yes and what's crazy is you would think, you know, you draw back, you shoot one, it's bullet hole. You shoot the next one, bullet hole. The third one, tear left. Yes. And you're like, you start spinning it, uh -huh. and then before you get a bullet hole. And then I, go, and then I mark them yes. all, and then I fledge. Uh -huh. But let's do yes, the same thing. Yes, we do thing. the same. And when I would, if it was a brand new dozen arrows, I would have done that, yes. But now I have, you know, fledged arrows that I'm not going to reflesh all the time. Right, exactly. And so now I have to do it a little differently with the, you know, with the knock. The knock and the veins are already on there, so. yeah. And it's really I, important to change your knock. I mean, I do change my knocks out several times a year, when, okay. especially when I'm shooting That's competitions yeah. and stuff. Because um, because your knocks do get weak, they don't snap on the string quite the same, or they and when they get a little, they might start turning, you know, a little bit on the arrow. Yeah. And so it's nice. I I do make it a point to change my knocks every few months. So even what about though, knock fit? Let's yes. let's talk a little bit about that too, because I I think that's something that's so important. It's kind of hard to teach it though maybe not hard to teach it but chances are the average person that gets a set of arrows in a bow they i don't know most likely they probably don't know how to reserve mm -hmm. right so here they are they have the serving already done on their string their arrows came with knocks they're probably just going to shoot whatever knocks and, and you know serving string that they got and there's pretty good chance it's probably way too tight yeah you know Either way too tight or way too loose exactly so like what what is something that you look for when it comes to knock fit that's a good question nobody's ever asked me that before <laughs> i mean honestly kind of like sound like right how it because because um when it's fitting appropriately it's still it sounds the same when it snaps on your string you know what right. i mean and i i don't even know how to explain that to somebody other than you know it's like this i'm looking for this specific sound to know right if well you know uh, what, and what i look for is i i listen for the snap i want a slight snap mm -hmm. i don't want it like you push right. and it goes click and then it, yeah and another thing i've noticed that is that is really good and i actually learned this from uh john dudley mm -hmm. is if you can take your arrow and you start moving that arrow, um, like say it's on your rest and you start moving it, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 degrees away from your, from your riser. Right. If the string is turning too, too tight. it's way too tight. Yep. And then too, I mean, after you shoot 30 arrows, if your serving is starting to create a flat spot, it's probably too, too tight. tight. Yep, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I never have any flat spots on my serving ever. Right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. It definitely, and when it's too tight, then you're going to be breaking your knocks when you're shooting too. Like your knocks are just going to break. Yeah. So, and I've also sometimes 
if, if your knocks aren't, you know, if you don't have one drop of glue on your knock or whatever, if it's too tight, you'll shoot and then it gets pulled out and who knows where yeah, the knock goes. Yeah, well, and sometimes your knock stays on the string and the arrow, you know, the arrow yeah, shoots sure, and you have the knock stayed on the string. <laughs> yeah. So if that's happening, your serving is definitely too tight. Yeah. Too tight for sure. Yeah. So um, when you mess with arrows and you build your arrows, how particular are you in your arrows weight in relation to each other? I mean, are you trying to get them within a grain or two or don't really worry too much about it? Like what, what's kind of your, to be honest, I don't for? weigh them after I cut the ball. I cut them all the same length. And if they, I mean, I shoot gold tip arrows. So, and I try, I get yeah. the, the highest tolerance. Like of the straightness. Platinum. Yeah, platinum, the platinum. yeah. The platinum. So those are the straightest arrows that they make. And I just, um, you know, relying on them to hopefully they came weighing the same from the factory. I cut them all the same, so they better right. be, you know what I mean? They better be damn but, close. <laughs> but that's the, that's the thing is, I can't shoot my bow good enough to tell a difference in three grains of an right. arrow. You know what I right. mean? And I don't think anybody can. Right. And so I, that's something, again, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really worry too much about. So I never, I don't weigh them individually. Like I'll cut them and flush them and put my broadhead and weigh them and I'd be, okay, I'm shooting 350 grain arrow or, or around 353 is how much my arrows weigh all flushed up and ready to, to hunt with or, ready to or whatever, you know, but I don't <laughs> weigh each arrow individually. And like I said, it's because if I could shoot my bow well enough to tell the difference between three grains, then I got to be Superman or something. You know, right. I don't think anybody could, I don't think anybody could tell that. Right. Right. And I, and I, I think, more the reason that I do it. It's not so much that I'm like, oh my God, I can tell. It's more like when I am working on it and I'm building it and I start weighing stuff out and they're just say they're all within a grain. Mm -hmm. I just feel bad. I'm like, oh, yeah. okay, okay, cool. Yeah, I you know good. you have 12 perfect arrows. Yeah. yeah. And, you just, I, and I think it's just a confidence yeah, thing, you know, not, not that sure. I could tell, Definitely. you know, maybe if it's 10, well, I mean, what do you think it is? Maybe 10 grains you might oh, yeah, be able to start telling tell five it. grains, maybe. I don't and know. And it would but, depend on the distance too. You right, wouldn't be able of course, to tell of course. You wouldn't be able to tell so much at closer distances, like but 20, if you were yeah. shooting 80 yards, you could definitely tell that your arrow is 10 grains different. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yep. Well, I don't know. Um, your your nephew's shooting yep. at three okay perfect well we will wrap this up i really appreciate you swinging by thank you it was so no i do because we're like let's do it in the morning hey can you can you by chance move it and i was just like i feel like such an asshole i kept asking uh, you to move it and change it but i appreciate yeah, you being no so problem. flexible so thank you so much